listening to Connection Church's podcast. Good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? A couple of woos, a couple of eh, you know. My name is Cody. I'm the student pastor here at Connection Church, and I'm glad to be with you this morning. I have the privilege of bringing the word and uh, very uh, interested to see what God's going to do today. Um, it is uh, going to be a very great day with the Word, and I think that God is really going to speak to us in a mighty way if we, if we let Him. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to, with me to Revelation 21. We're, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 1 for the most of the day, but I wanted to just start with Revelation 21. This, is a, this text, uh, Revelation 1, 9 through 20, was assigned to me a couple months ago, and this was the first passage that I wanted to begin this sermon with, and I think it just... It really applies to the situation and circumstance that our community is um, experiencing this week. And um, I want to hope this verse will be an encouragement as we continue to go on throughout the day um, in our week. So if you have your Bible, Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, we're going to read this and then we're going to pray and we'll dive right into the, uh, to the other text that we're going to be studying. So it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will, somebody say he will. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God called himself, and God called himself, or God himself will be with them as their God. He will, somebody say he will. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away, amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for, Lord, that we can apply this to ourselves today. Lord, thank you that you're, that you're working in us and through us as a church body and as individuals. Lord, we just ask that as we uh, go through revelation, Lord, that you just continue to reveal yourself to us in new and in mighty ways. Lord, that will encourage us and equip us and help us endure. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Amen. Well, Revelation is an interesting book. Um, I'm sure this is not the book that your family sits down and does devotionals with. Um, it's not the book that you want to read before you go to bed at night. We tend to approach the book of Revelation with a little bit of hesitancy, a little bit of fear, maybe a little bit of um, anxiety because it deals with some interesting things. Uh, we get to a certain point and we may not fully understand it and that makes us uncomfortable. So we then, we then turn to, you know, maybe not, I'll go through the first few chapters of it and then not so much the rest because it is a very interesting book as you're reading. And uh, we're gonna go through a little bit of the, the beginning of the interesting stuff is how I, how I would say it. And what I want us to remember though is that a lot of times when we don't go to Revelation is because we get so consumed with what we think it's about. Revelation, it does deal with the last things, the last days, the end times, and how many of us in here get uncomfortable when talking about the end times? Really? I should let you guys get up here and preach then because this stuff makes me a little bit nervous sometimes. This does deal with the last days though, and the end times, but what I want us to remember as we're approaching the text, and I think this will also be relevant to us here today, is the fact that Revelation, yes, does deal with that, but... The whole point of the book of Revelation is not to be focused and concerned on the end as much as it is about a new beginning. It's just about a new beginning. And that's what God is trying to reveal to us as we're going through his scriptures. Now, Revelation is awesome because we get a clear picture of who Jesus is, especially in chapter one, nine through 20, which is the text we're going through. How many of us know that if you wanna know something about somebody, you go to them, you go ask them about it, right? 
If you wanna know something about somebody, you go to that person directly or else you start having gossip and, and all this other stuff. In Statesboro, especially GSU, we're not gossipers, are we? You know, none of us like to gossip or anything. Yeah, so anyway, Revelation, we get a clear picture of who Jesus is. And what I found interesting was like this, this uh, it was uh, Saturday, yeah, yesterday, man, my days are off. Yesterday, I did a wedding in South Carolina and for, for a group of people that I don't really know that well, um, they, they had asked uh, somebody from Connection to come in because they trust Connection, they like Connection. I was able to meet with them, get to know them a little bit. And during, the, during this wedding though, I didn't know anybody. And as a pastor at a wedding, when you don't really know the people, it gets really awkward because they treat you kind of like more holy than thou. And it just, it gets really awkward. Like we'll be in the line getting food and they'll, be, they'll come up to you and be like, the Lord is good. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, the Lord is good, but you're slow. Come on, move it along, I want some chicken. You know, give me some of that. You know, that's, that's nice, that's, that's true, but like you get treated a little bit different. And not only that, and I'm probably gonna answer some of the questions that you guys may have looking at me up here right now, but typically when I do weddings, there's usually this look I get from everybody. How old is he? And so you guys are laughing, the ones that are laughing, are like, yeah, I'm asking that question right now. <laughs> Did somebody check his license before he got up on stage this morning? No, that's usually what, that's usually what I get. And it's so interesting because like yesterday, I'm, uh, I'm leading down the aisle. All the guys are behind me. And these guys all got like beards, like, pfft, you know, and then I don't, you know, I'm not gonna tell you my age because I wanna leave a little bit of mystery. I will tell you that I've been married five years and I have two kids. I'll let you wrestle with the rest. But as I'm walking down the aisle and these guys, I start getting that look again, that same usual. Did somebody change his diaper before he got here? What's going on here? You know, and I had this, the last wedding I did, this, uh, this uh, I think the great grandmother of somebody came up and said, aren't you too young to be doing this? I'm like, what was, it, what was it like hanging out with Moses? All right, so you wanna talk about age. <laughs> we can go there if you want. You know, but they were all curious and interesting lip. As I'm walking down the aisle, I'm getting that, getting that look and people think I'm like the ring bearer or something. But I finally get up there. I finally get up there and everything, everything's finally falling into place. And the, the groom is about to bawl his eyes out. You know, that, that's just how that goes. And he's sitting there and he goes, man, I need you to kind of lighten the mood. He's, I need you to lighten the mood. I'm like, okay, I'll do my best. So the first thing I start off is like, just so everybody knows, I am of age to do this. All right. They check my license in the state of South Carolina. I'm good to go. Okay, I can perform this. But that's always the question. Who is he and how old is he? Is he old enough? And I think more often than not, nobody ever came and asked me how old I was. They just assumed that I'm just 16 or 12, you know, whichever one I, I seem to look more like. But in, in referencing like that to Jesus, sometimes we look at Jesus and we don't really understand who he is. We just make assumptions about who he is. Uh, we allow other people to inform us about who he is. But the reality is, is God's word is very clear who Jesus is. And what's interesting is that you, most world religions, I would venture to say every world religion, major world religion, want something to do with Jesus. Want something to do with Jesus. They all have something about Jesus that they like. Eastern religions teach that he is an avatar, that he is a pinnacle of what you can reach in their belief system. Islam believes he's a prophet. Even secularism and atheism teaches that, yeah, Jesus existed and he was a moral man, but that's about it. So even atheism will admit that he existed. Very, very few people disagree that Jesus actually walked the earth. So everybody wants a piece of this Jesus guy. 
And for me, if everybody wants a piece of this Jesus guy, I think the responsible thing for us as Christians to do, I think the right thing and the common sense thing to do is if everybody wants a piece of this guy, then we should go to him first and see what he says about himself. Does that make sense? Why wouldn't we go to the source himself? Because God's word clearly reveals who Jesus is and what Jesus said about himself, not what other people said about him. And I think that's really unique about Christianity is that Christ is the center and he is revealing himself to us. So I want us to keep that in mind as we're gonna get a clear picture of who he is in Revelation 1, 9 through 20. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there, Revelation 1, 9 through 20. We're gonna try and break this down into three little sections. The first section is gonna be our story revealed. In the opening lines, we're gonna be able to see how we relate to John the disciple as he is writing this, writing this vision that God has given him that Christ is revealing to him. We're gonna see how we relate to that. The second part is we're gonna see Christ revealed as who, as who Christ has chosen to reveal himself as. No assumptions, no guesswork, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And then finally, we're gonna see our response revealed and how we should respond according to who Jesus is. So I want us to be mindful of that as we're approaching these texts. So Revelation 1, 9 through 11, let's read that and then we'll pause for a second. Revelation 1, 9 through 11, it says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So we're brought in to John's story, his, his experience with the Lord. And what we see is he immediately identifies himself with his people. He says, I am your partner and brother and all these things that I'm going to tell you. He's gonna tell the church some pretty, some pretty hard stuff but they can trust it because they know he is with them, that he is, he is doing it for their benefit. So they can trust this word. And what we see is God strategically using John to proclaim the message, this important revelation, as we'll see in a moment. But the first thing that we have to deal with, and like I said, this message was planned out two months in advance. Um, so it's, it's just gonna fall that we're gonna, have, that we're gonna talk about this. The first thing we gotta talk about is what John says he's the partner and brother in is tribulation, your translation might say suffering, the kingdom and the endurance. Write those three words down, tribulation, kingdom and endurance, because these are the true truth. These are the three truths, excuse me, of Christianity. These are the three truths of Christianity. Number one is the tribulation and the suffering. I want us for a moment to think about and understand that there are two different types of suffering that we experience as Christians, yes, but also as people just in general. There's two types of suffering. If you're taking notes, you'll want to write these down. The first type of suffering is suffering from the side effect of sin. Suffering from the side effect of sin. And that is living in a broken, fallen, world where things don't go according to plan. Things don't go the way they were originally designed. Things hurt, things happen. And it's tough for us to put and wrap our minds around these things. 
I don't want you to hear me in saying that all suffering is a direct result from a, from a single sin. Jesus rebukes that claim in John chapter nine. However, we were represented by Adam and at the fall, things broke. Things broke. Now we, have, we live in this world where things break and things are broken and God desires to reconcile and to rebuild and to restore. And his word in Revelation promises that he will and he is going to. So there's that type of suffering, but then there's another type of suffering. We have suffering from the side effect of sin. And then the second one is that we have the suffering for the savior. Suffering from the side effect of sin and suffering from the, for the savior. Those are two different things. They are closely related, but it's important that, especially given the tragedies of, recent, of the recent days that we remember that we are part of a broken and fallen world and that God is here to equip, encourage us and give us endurance through these times as we'll talk about in just a moment when it comes to endurance. So please keep those two things in mind as the rest of the, as the, rest of the teaching proceeds. Now, the next one is kingdom. This is the second truth of Christianity, kingdom. We are on a mission. Anytime you see the word kingdom in the gospel, it's referencing God's sovereignty and are in the mission he has given us and instilled in us, which is to make disciples that make disciples, which is to go to the nations and bring people to him because through him is the only way we find comfort in our time of suffering. Through him is the only answer to, to our deepest, darkest needs, maybe that nobody knows about. He's the one we can come to when we're mourning because Matthew 5, 4 clearly says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. We bring people to him to mourn. We bring people to him to have a relationship and fellowship with him because through mourning with Christ and as a Christian in Christ, we will experience comfort. That is a promise. That is a promise from Jesus himself. And I trust Jesus and I trust his word because I found it to be true multiple times in, in many situations, even when I originally didn't believe it to be true. It was still true. And suffering's not normal. As we're on mission, we will, we will experience suffering because of the broken state of the world and because of the gospel. And it's not normal. We weren't designed to suffer. We weren't created to suffer. We weren't created for the terrible things of this life. It's not how God originally intended it. And he is making a way and he is preparing a way. We have to trust in that as Brandon said earlier. We suffer, we suffer because I mean, it hurts because it's not normal. It's not our intended design but God offers the healing process of mourning and grieving and coming to know him at a deeper level. So we have there the kingdom and the mission. And the third truth of Christianity is the patient endurance. As we suffer, as we are on mission for God, he promises endurance for those in Christ. He says, you will remain, if you remain, if you remain in him, he will be with you always. He will always give you the strength. He will always help you come through it. We can endure, we can have patient endurance and joy because his word promises that. The question is, do we trust his word? Because it is a promise. So we see that right off the get-go, we're immediately drawn into that serious context that is very applicable to our, to our community at this time. So I want us to grab hold of that truth that God will allow us to endure. He will encourage us and equip us through his word as we come to understand at a deeper level who he is. And as we continue on in Revelation, you will see a clear picture of who he is. And this should give us a hope and encouragement and strength 
So ultimately we will experience suffering and brokenness, but there is a promise of endurance for those who suffer in either capacity from the broken world or for the gospel. But we also see the context in which John is writing. He is in exile on the island of Patmos. Exile has never been a fun place for anybody in scripture. And Hebrews talks about how once we've come to know Jesus, we are now in exile. Once we've come to a saving relationship with Christ, we are now exiles in this world. So we can relate to that. He was a physical exile. And here we are spiritual exiles. But John was exiled on this island of Patmos, which is about 35 miles from, from off the coast on an island. That was meant to shut him up. John was planning churches. John was spreading the gospel. He was spreading it boldly. He's not ashamed of the gospel. He kept teaching no matter what. And the governing authorities wanted to shut him up. So they sent him to exile a place to keep him quiet. But what that did was that allowed him to get alone with God. That allowed him to be with God. And ironically, what was meant to shut him up served as a, pro as a platform for him to proclaim the most important revelation that we have of Christ. That's how God works. Governing authorities said, hey, you're on, you're on Patmos now. We can't, there's nothing he can do now. He wrote revelation, sent it to the churches, and then they send it to elsewhere. I mean, that's just how God works. He takes those difficult times that we go through, those hard times that we go through, if we let him, if we let him in and we go to him and we mourn with him and we grieve with him, he takes those situations that seem like things are just bad and awful. And they may very well be, but he takes those things. His word promised to take those things and bring good about them. From Genesis to Revelation, that is a promise, a reoccurring promise of scripture. Genesis, we see a passage where a man says what, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Fast forward thousands of years into Romans 8.28. And we have that passage right here at Romans 8.28. I'm sure most of us have heard this passage at some time. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. If you're in this room and you're in this church and you're a part of the body of Christ, if you're in Christ, if you're hearing this message today, you have the opportunity to be called according to his purposes. Jesus likes to take those, those temptations and make them testimonies. He likes to take those struggles and use them as a platform to build strength upon, to strengthen the hopeless, to, to help those who are in need. And we see the type of suffering that John is enduring. He is enduring a different type of suffering. He is enduring suffering for the savior. Suffering for the savior. Salvation is free, but the gospel comes at a high cost. My question to us is on this, switching gears a little bit, is the gospel costing us anything as a church? Have you found yourself in a situation, circumstance, where you had to choose between culture and Christ? If as a Christian in Christ, you're not experiencing those things, I challenge you to evaluate your walk with the Lord this morning because we cannot come to Christ and still engage in or still embrace culture the way we used to. Recently, I had a good friend of mine who was faced with this situation. He owns his own business and a situation came up where he had to embrace either culture or Christ. If he embraced culture, he got a paycheck. If he embraced Christ, he lost out talked with him, prayed with him. 
He went with Christ and it cost him. But at the end of the day, talking with him, he says, I would not have done it any other way because of the strength it gave him, the confidence it gave him to know that he can stand against culture. Now he's gonna be able to do it more and more and more and be more bold with the gospel because of that. Because once you, once you get to that point where you know that you can stand up for Christ, you don't wanna sit down. And that, that not only encouraged him, but it encouraged me as a Christian to let me know there's still people out there willing to take a stand for their faith. And that's very encouraging. So he's suffering for the gospel. And it says he heard a voice like a trumpet. All that means is that the word of God was clear in his ear. He could hear it. He knew it. This instruction was clear and that he was to write it down and to send it to the seven churches. These seven churches are very strategic, very strategic placing because from these churches, these letters would be able to be dispersed easily amongst the rest of the churches. God is strategically using these churches to to expound on the word and to send it out in the same way that God is strategically using Connection Church here in Statesboro and the other churches to do the same. In the Bible, we see that the church is the light of the world. We see that the church is to be a city on a hill so that the people who are wandering around in the dark, so people who are hopeless, who are lost, who are suffering without Christ, they will look and say, man, there's some light, there's some rescue, there's some comfort, I wanna go there. That's what we're supposed to be doing as a church. That is the strategy of God. And God invites us all to be a part of that strategy to reach others who don't know him. So moving on, Revelation 1, 12 through 16, it says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. Here we have Christ revealed. We have Christ revealed in a, in a, in a unique way. And what we see, I don't want you to think of these as like physical attributes of God because that would be very, very weird. We got a sword coming out of my mouth. We got feet on fire. We don't know what's going on. It looks very kooky. All right. And this is what, this is a lot of times what we do. We tend to kookify. I don't know. That's not a word. That's definitely not a word. Write that one down though. You'll use it later. I promise. And talking to somebody about revelation, we tend to over kookify revelation in a lot of senses, over spiritualize it. Do you guys have any friends that are just like, like way over spiritual about everything? Does anybody have any of those friends? Like a cloud passes by the rains of heaven are coming down. I know people like that. I've got friends like that where everything, everything, that everything, you're just like, chill out for a second. Come on, man. For example, I had a, uh, there was a, there was an older woman in the church. I, I didn't grow up in the church scene. I did go to church occasionally with this family. And I remember going to church with this family and this lady comes up and it was a very um, enthusiastic church. Uh, very, very charismatic church. And, that, and that's, where, that's where somebody had prophesied and said, you're going to be in ministry. And I said, yeah, right. And here we are. Um, so I don't discredit everything like that, but this is interesting. This is, this is funny because this shows how we over-spiritualize things. She comes up and she says, mind you, I lived in Texas at the time. She said, also approaching summer, that's important to know too. She said, it's going to be like the days of Elijah. 
It's gonna be like the days of Elijah. This, this state and this country is headed in the wrong direction and God is gonna withhold the rains. And I'm thinking, okay, continue. And she goes, we're not gonna see rain and it is going to be hot and dry. And I'm like, we're in Texas in summer. That's like telling me it's raining in Seattle this week. Okay, that's like telling me that there's gonna be a lot of people at Times Square on New Year's Eve. We tend to over-spiritualize everything. I don't wanna discredit a lot of the spirituality, but in coming to this, it's important that we see that these are symbolic characteristics, not physical things to attach God or attach Christ with. That's important that we know that because our culture, we like to take the physical things that we wear, the physical things that we like and identify ourselves by that another sermon, another time, but that's what we tend to do. You know, like sometimes when Brandon will mention me on Sunday, he usually associates me with skinny jeans or what he called last week, a lint brush. I wanna clarify, that's a lint roller, okay? For the record, lint brush makes it sound even more feminine. All right, and just by the way, Wranglers are a whole lot tighter than skinny jeans, amen? Okay, so moving on. And this is the word of the Lord. So these are symbolic attributes that we need to remember. Don't think about Jesus. Don't think about a sword coming from Jesus's mouth. We could do that on stage with a magician. We don't wanna do that here. But I want you to remember what's taking place here as symbolic, right? First off the bat, we see seven lampstands. That, that represents the church, like we had said a moment ago. The seven lampstands, light of the world. That's what we're called to do. Moving on, he goes on to say that Jesus was wearing a long white robe with a golden sash. And what that represents is the holy priesthood that was in the Old Testament and in, in Jesus' early days. That's what that represents. He was a high priest. He is our high priest. And what the high priest would do is he would go in and he would offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of the nation that would cover sin. He would offer sacrifice that covered sin. That's what the high priest would do. And likewise, Jesus has done the same in a different capacity and he's done it way better because where sin was simply covered by sacrifice, Jesus comes to wash it away, amen? That's pretty good, that's, pretty, that's worth an amen, I like that. But anyway, Hebrews tells us more about Jesus as a high priest. In Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, you don't have to turn there, we'll have it on the screen for you. Um, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, it says, ah, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. I would venture to say Connection Church and the people of this community are in a time of need right now. Would we all agree? We have a high priest who is able to be there with us. It says Jesus was in the midst of the lampstands. A church is simply a, call, a bunch of called out individuals. Christ is among us, he is with us. He has revealed himself in such a way to let us know he is with us and he can sympathize. He does understand what we're going through. That's how we can approach him boldly. And that's what makes him the high priest, not a high priest, but the high priest. Like I said, he doesn't simply cover sin, he washes it completely away. You guys ever wondered why it had to be Jesus and why it had to go down like that? Anybody wonder like, why did that have to happen? Was there not another way being on a show of hands? Anybody ever think about that? 
I hope as Christians, we challenge these things because these are important to understanding why. Let's take a look at the next one. Hair like, like hair white like wool. This is not Gandalf. This is not Dumbledore. That's typically the image we get when we think of long white hair. How many guys, like when you think of like a godly figure, you think of somebody like Dumbledore um, or Gandalf or, or wise wizard of sorts. Typically I've seen paintings, older paintings. You don't see this much anymore. I've seen older paintings. My grandma had one of a painting. It's supposed to be like God and his people. And it was like an old man with long white hair, golden sash. You know, he had a sword in his pocket, but not, he wouldn't, it wouldn't come out of his mouth. But what happened was he, he would be leaned over like this with a cane. Last time I checked though, God doesn't have back problems, but that's the image we usually give him. Old man, long white hair, long beard. It's not what it's saying. And this really doesn't even represent the wisdom of God. I know sometimes we like to say, I've got white hair, that means I've got wisdom. That's not what, it's, that's not what it's saying here. This is saying, and it represents his pure and dazzling beauty, his pureness in all. He is completely, totally perfect and pure in every way. In the ancient world, this was the most profound way to explain the purity, white like snow white like wool. I want you to put yourself in the context of being in the Middle East. And when they would see snow, think about how hot it gets over there and they would see snow so beautiful, perfectly white, pure. That, that's what the hair white like wool represents. And this is, how it's, this is how Jesus is portrayed. This is how God's glory is portrayed in the transfiguration in Mark 9. To answer the question, why did it have to go down like this? Why did it have to be Christ? Because he's the only one that's pure. You think, well, that still doesn't satisfy. Here's the deal. Can we all agree, being honest, honest hour here in church, um, can we all just make the obvious statement that we're imperfect? Yes? Interact with me here a little bit, yes? We would all agree, yes, I got a thumbs up over there. Awesome, that means I can move on. Thumbs up means good, I got it. We are imperfect. Jesus is perfect. You're like, I learned that in the second grade. I get it. Listen, you, it couldn't have been you. It couldn't have been somebody else. It couldn't have been your friend. It couldn't have been anybody else. Because here's the deal. Imperfection can't atone for imperfection. Sick people can't make sick people well. Impure can't turn something, can't be made pure without something pure being poured into it. We are naturally impure. We are naturally imperfect. So it had to be somebody perfect, holy, pure, undefiled to bring us back to a state of reconciliation with God. There is no other way because there is no one else. That's why Jesus said, I am the way because there is no one else. If there was another way, he would have let us know. He is the only one. When we are wrong, he is righteous. When we are in sin, he saves. That's who he is. Goes on to say, goes on to say he had eyes like flame of fire. This is a fun one because what this represents is his divine omniscience. He knows everything. He absolutely knows everything. Past, present, future, he knows it. And this may either be the most comforting or convicting aspect of this whole passage, because if he knows all things in that fiery, that piercing gaze that he looks at us, looks at us with, it will either convict us or comfort us. Both are healthy. 
both are good. So my question is, as he's piercing our soul with those blazing eyes, what does he see this morning? What does he see in our hearts? Because he sees everything, he knows everything. What does he see in us this morning? And he sees the sin, but unlike us, we condemn each other for sin. Unlike us, he sees the sin and makes us uncomfortable with sin so that he can draw it out. He doesn't look in and condemn us. He wants to bring us to a better relationship, a better way. So when he sees sin, it may hurt a little bit, but it's because he's drawing out the poison. That's what he does when he's looking into the depths of our soul. In the book of Jeremiah, it says that the Lord is the one who searches the mind. This also represents the wrath of God too. The, we, a lot of times we focus so much on God's love that we forget about his wrath and his wrath is very important. He is eventual God. He gets angry with a righteous anger. He gets angry at sin. He gets angry at death. He gets angry at suffering. He gets angry and he promises that he's doing something about it. And he already has done, won the war with Christ. But there will be a day where all this tangible, physical suffering pain will be done. And it's good to get angry like God gets angry. We should be angry when we experience grief and tragedy. But anger, let me tell you this, anger manifested appropriately will always lead us, manifested in a godly way will always lead us closer to God. And always lead us to a, and the ability to share the gospel with others who are hurting. So by him looking into the depths of our soul, we are fully known. And this is comforting because what I understand is that the one who knows all can cure all, save all, restore all, and bring all back to him. The one who knows everything. Goes on to say that his feet like burnished bronze. This represents the firm foundation of those who are in faith. The bronze is a strong metal, very important back in this day. Represents the firm foundation that Christ provides for his people. Not only that, it says it was his feet. And feet in the ancient world, once again, were, were always attributed to the direction that one was going. Follow your feet. Proverbs are full of talking about people's feet. I don't like feet, personally. But the Proverbs and, and wise sayings of all other religions talk about feet. And what this saying is God, through Christ, has stepped before us. That's the direction God, he has stepped before us. He has made a way for us back to God through Christ. And that's what we see. The one, he is the one direction Christ has stepped before us so that we can step in confidence. Proverbs 16, nine clearly talks about how that a man devises a plan in his heart, but the Lord establishes his steps. You guys know since he is before all things and he is in all things and he is so far in the future, he knows all things. Do you guys understand? This is something that somebody had to tell me one time and it brought me a lot of comfort. Because he has stepped before us, that means he has grieved the things that we grieve long before we did. And because we know he has grieved and because we know he is hurt and because we know those things, that allows us to come to him with confidence because he's already prepared a way in and through it. I want us to hold fast to that and remember that, that he has been there. The steps are right in front of us. We just have to follow where he's already stepped. Goes on to say the roar of many waters describes his voice. This represents the powerful but beautiful aspect of Jesus. He's so powerful, so beautiful. Have you guys ever, you guys like to listen to like rushing water? 
Sometimes when I'm like trying to go to sleep, I used to listen to rushing water or in Colorado, I always enjoyed going to streams into the rivers and listening to the rushing water or watching a waterfall just because of its beauty and it's soothing and it's comforting. And that is, the, that, is, that is Christ, he is comforting, he soothes us and he softens our heart. But there's also a power behind it that causes us to change. And his piercing eyes, we have to remember too, when he looks at us, we don't stay the same and it's his voice that causes us to change. The look lets us know, hey, you need to come back. You need to come to me. His words though, soothe us and soften us and bring us back closer to him. Talks about for a moment, the right hand, him holding the seven stars. This represents his care for the churches and how he holds his bride dear. And probably the most important aspect is the two-edged sword face and in the face like shining sun, that represents his glory. But the, the two double-edged sword, of course, in Hebrews references that it pierces the soul, the depths of our soul. His word is like a double-edged sword that goes after our soul, piercing the spiritual bone and marrow that we have. Talks about a blade and, and we, it doesn't seem like a soft image, does it? Talking about the blade piercing. It hurts. The word of God hurts sometimes. And I want us to be able to distinguish between the two types of pain. We talked about the two types of suffering. There's two types of pain that we deal with as Christians and as non-Christians. Pain from infliction and pain from healing. Pain from infliction is a result from the infection of sin that's in our life that we were, that we were naturally endowed with. The pain of a broken world, of a fallen world, where things don't go according to the plan. That's painful, that hurts. There's no way around it. That's one thing I love about the gospel is that it's so honest about suffering. It's so honest about the things of this world. When other religions tell you it's, oh, um, avoid suffering at all costs. Is that a reality church? Can we avoid suffering? No, we cannot. Any person who says that you should try to avoid it is clearly out of their mind and clearly has not lived longer than a day. You can't avoid suffering and the Bible tells you you can't. It's the most honest. Other religions say suffering is karma. That is not true. Don't believe that for a minute because here Jesus defeats the idea of karma because he is the most perfect man who ever lived and he suffered the greatest cost. So Jesus defeats the idea of karma. So we're left with scripture and what it says. Jesus's baby brother, James, in his letter clearly states, it's the opening line, things will be tough, life is hard most honest. That's why I trust the gospel because this is the most honest about the hard things in life. It's the most honest about it and it also gives us a way out of it. it. Tells us how to make it through and how to endure. So honest. So we have pain from infliction and pain from healing. You know, sometimes when I've cut my arm before, it hurt, but you know what hurt just as bad? Pouring the alcohol on it. But was that pain from infliction or pain from healing? Pain from healing because it's cleaning out the wound. The sword, the word of God, it hurts sometimes, but it's hurting because of healing. And when we're mourning, when we're as a community, as individuals, as we're mourning in this season, mourning is the part of the healing process. We have to remember that. Morning is healthy, morning is good, we should do it. We should be at the feet of Jesus because as we said earlier, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. To be comforted, we mourn and we chase after God.
pain from infliction, pain from healing. Two important things that we can't afford to mix up in our healing process. We gotta wrap up. In Revelation 17 through 20, I'm just gonna read this one part. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen that those are and that are, will take, that are to take place after this. We'll stop right there for the sake of time. Do we have a John-like response to Christ? Do we have that response, that reverence, that desire to be at the feet of Jesus when things don't seem to be going well or when things are going well? Do we have that response? How are we responding to Christ? Because right now in this room, I know that people need to respond to Christ maybe for the first time. Maybe they need to respond in repentance, maybe in worship. How are we in our worship? We gotta evaluate these things. How do we respond to Christ and His invitation? Some of us need to respond this morning by mourning. Some of us need to respond this morning by repentance, some need to respond in worship. Some need to respond in prayer. Everybody in here needs to respond to Christ in some way. How are we doing that? If you're in this room this morning and you say, I don't even know the Lord, but I, how do I even respond to him? If you're in this room and you've been grieved and you're looking for that way to mourn, you're looking for salvation, you're looking for Jesus as we see him in the text. If you've never had a saving relationship with Jesus and you say this morning, I wanna respond to Christ. I wanna respond to his invitation that saves, that offers eternal life, that takes me from spiritual death to spiritual life so I can spend eternity with him. If that's you in this room and you say this for the first time, I wanna say yes to the Lord and Savior, the only one who is, has the ability to bring comfort, the only one who has the ability to save, the only high priest. If that's you and say yes for the first time, that's how you respond. Would you just slip up your hand so we can celebrate with you this morning? I'll give you a second. Your heart may be racing 90 miles an hour. That's okay, that's normal. That's the Holy Spirit working in and through you. I'm just gonna give you a couple seconds. If there's anybody in this room that says, I need a saving faith relationship with Jesus Christ, just slip up your hand. We just wanna celebrate with you. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? Anybody else? Say, this morning is the morning I say yes. Today is the day of salvation. Just slip up your hand high for us. Amen. What that means for the rest of us is that we all still need to respond to Christ in some way. And what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna open up the front here for everybody to come and pray if you need prayer. Our time, we're in a time of grieving and we need to mourn and we need to be comforted. We're gonna open that up. If you need prayer for anything, for any reason, in any way, Come get your prayer. Come up here, come pray with the Lord, come be with the Lord. We have a prayer team that's gonna be available too if you need prayer in that capacity. Please, some of us have tough questions. God embraces tough questions. We want to be able to help you through this. In any form, any way, marriage is on the rocks, things are not good at the job, whatever it is, respond to Christ in a fashion that relates to John. Fall at his feet. So as I pray to close the service, you guys can move forward and come pray at the front. Chase is gonna keep playing piano and you can just rest in the Lord for a moment.
If you don't desire to pray, then you can, you'll be dismissed as soon as the prayer is over. But for those who want to pray, as I pray, you can move to the front. Everybody is welcome, everybody. We all need to respond to Christ. How will we do it? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you're doing in and through. Lord, everybody here, thank you for what your word represents. Thank you for giving us a clear picture of who you are. God, you're so good. God, you're so faithful. God, you're so great. Lord, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of suffering, you grieve with us and you mourn with us. Lord, you comfort us in the morning. Lord, help us remember your character because often that's the first to go. Lord, help us remember that you are good, that you are faithful, that you have been there. You know it, you've experienced it and you wanna be there to walk us through it. Lord, I thank you for the salvation that we've seen this morning. I thank you for the life that you have changed forever and bringing him into a relationship with you. You're so good. Thank you for what you did through your son, Jesus on the cross, for his grace and his mercy and for him being who he is to us. In Jesus' name, amen.